spooky friends, I'm Eileen, and welcome to Was It The Rain? Hello and happy Halloween! Oh, the vibes are right today, y'all. The clouds have rolled in, the rain is aggressively falling, and there is a crisp in the air that you just can't beat. Now, really quickly, before we jump in, I want to touch a bit on the podcast itself for a minute because I'm so new to doing this, and I'm not going to lie, it gets a little bit uncomfortable at times, so I think episodes that are maybe a bit more lighthearted and personal will be a really good way for you guys to get to know who I am a little bit better. I mean, let's face it, there is nothing natural about sitting on the floor of your home office and talking into a microphone on a random day of the week. It just doesn't feel right, and so I think a bit more practice is definitely going to make perfect. I also had a fun idea of maybe having some guests on or introducing a second voice to maybe give the illusion of a conversation because I think those podcasts are so much fun. But this is also brand new, and that's the beauty of it. We get to try everything at least once and see what sticks. So thank you for bearing with me, and I can't wait to keep getting better and better. Now, I want to set the scene early for this episode because I just want us all to be in the same mood. It's a full moon. Clouds are barely passing over it. It's not raining, but there's a slight breeze that chills you to your core. You're at home, pumpkin-scented candles burning and all the lights are out. You're alone, and you really wanted this to be the night you finally get through your favorite horror movie and really just revel in Halloween spirit. But you can't help but feel like something or someone is watching you, and you don't know where from. Are they in the room behind you, but you just can't see them in the dark? Are they outside, peeking through the window? Or are they somewhere else in the house, waiting for you to come their way? You're about to find out. Now for this episode, I thought what better way for us to get to know each other better than some personal brushes with the sinister. The tales I have today include one of my own, my mom's, and my sister's, and it was so fun getting to talk with the two of them and have them retell the story and the light in their eyes and the fear in their voices and just getting to feel like I'm experiencing it with them all over again. And now, you get to experience it with me! Scary stories are an absolute staple of Halloween. We all love a good scare, right? That's why haunted houses exist or why we watch scary movies. And those also gave some really fun ideas for future episodes where we can discuss the different haunted houses in the Pacific Northwest because some go all out, as well as some of the best horror movies based in the PNW like Fear with Reese Witherspoon and Mark Wahlberg, which is absolutely one of my favorite thrillers. But the bottom line is campfire stories or sitting around a Ouija board trying to contact the dead are the essence of what make this holiday so haunted. So grab your blankets, turn off those lights, and light those candles because we are about to tell some sinister stories. Now, I actually wrote this tale for my childhood to be featured on another spooky podcast. However, it wasn't ever read, and so I'm super excited to share it on here with all of you. And while it doesn't contain ghosts, I think it definitely will add a little thrill to this 31st. I grew up in Roselia, Washington, moving when I was five years old to Spokane. We moved into a newer development. It was completed in 2004, but we were the first owners and lived towards the end of the cul-de-sac. Our neighborhood consisted of a wide array of people. There were older folks who were retired, a lot of families with a lot of kids, mine and my sister's age and older or younger. We had a lot of friends in the neighborhood and felt relatively safe majority of the time. Growing up, my younger sister and I spent the summers home alone. We were raised by a single mom, so we knew the drill. Keep the doors locked, blinds closed, and don't be too loud. We were actually pretty good kids growing up. We listened and did what we were told, which made for a pretty fun and easy home life when you're not always trying to rebel. However, 
We didn't always listen, and some days curiosity got the best of us and we'd break some rules. One hot sunny day in the middle of summer, we decided to test the boundaries and go play with some of our neighbor friends. We never ventured far outside our neighborhood in general, but this was more of the blind leading the blind situation, and we all went for it. The cul-de-sac across from ours was at a dead end, big yellow signs spelling it out and all. The property at the end was shared between two houses and then dropped off a cliff to an old rock quarry. Our whole neighborhood was surrounded by this quarry, and we definitely had our fair shares of troubles with it. A lot of people liked to go there, mostly teens and young adults, and smoke and start fires and drink. We had a set of our outdoor chairs that were wooden stolen once, and they were used for a bonfire, which was definitely a bummer. But anyways, at the bottom of the cliff was a lake. Okay, it was a pond, but it was a big enough pond that to the children it felt like a lake. And we decided that day would be the day we conquered that pond. We always knew it was there, and we were always told to stay the hell away from it. You know, dirty water disease and such were freaky, but not as freaky as what we'd learn. Still, when you're young, you're dumb, so we proceeded as planned. It was down a large hill we flew down on our bikes, but we had finally made it. It was about as brown, murky, and disgusting as you would expect from some random rock pond. We hauled it into the water and immediately regretted it. It smelled like hot ass in hell, and it was an uncomfortable lukewarm, like someone peed in it. But hey, we were there, and there we stayed. The quarry was nearly abandoned. There were large boulders, obviously, and sunken in and dug out spots, which seemed weird, but they probably had just dug around looking for rocks or something. There were trees, but it was pretty barren otherwise. The area didn't seem to have any current rock quarry activities, so there was literally no one around. Vibes were for sure off, but at 13, what the heck were vibes anyways? We swam around for a while, and all was well. We played chicken and timed each other holding our breaths underwater. I know, super gross. We were enjoying the nice cool off it gave us from the summer sun until I felt something brush my leg. Now, it wasn't your typical brush. It was like something almost grabbed it, like there was pressure to it, or at least that's what I thought. I let out a scream, and with arms flailing, I busted it to land. Obviously, everyone else ran out screaming too. I explained what I felt, and we all decided we were done. That was enough. Screw you, scary pond. We left, and honestly, that was that. I have no clue what I felt, but I would bet it was some sort of sticker plant. We kept our secret like the little shits we were and moved on with our lives. We did ride our bikes down there many more times, but steered clear to the pond, mostly because the smell got worse as the summers got hotter. Fast forward a few years and we were hanging out with some of my mom's friends, all adults, but I'd like to think my sister and I were cool enough to be their friends too. The husband of the friend was a cop and his mom was a jailer. We got on the topic of prisoners and who were some of the bigger arrests they had made. Well, this jailer told us about her biggest handle in prison, and it was one Robert Lee Yates. For those unfamiliar, Yates is, quote, an American serial killer from Spokane, Washington. From 1996 to 1998, Yates is known to have murdered at least 13 women, all of whom were sex workers working on Spokane's Skid Row on East Sprague Avenue. Yates also confessed to two murders committed in Walla Walla in 1975 and a 1988 murder committed in Skagit County. In 2002, Yates was convicted of killing two more women in Pierce County as well. He is currently on death row at the Washington State Penitentiary, unquote. So yeah, a nasty bad man. So why is this relevant, you might ask? News to me and my sister, but the burial site of multiple of Yates' victims was the rock quarry and pond we swam in. Talk about spooky. Learning this sent literal chills down our spines at the thought of walking through and swimming in the burial site. Not to mention whatever I felt touched me. Well, as an adult, I feel confident it was easily explainable. As a kid, I was sure it was a ghost or something, reaching for help. All the dug-up spots, while definitely were from mining rocks, and our minds morphed into horrible grave sites, and the dead-end signed at the top cliff gained a whole new meaning. Pre-my-birth, it was a whole crime scene that I was completely oblivious to. 
Spokane has seen its fair share of dirtbags and psychos, but how do you figure my childhood playground as a previous unwarranted graveyard? Truly and undeniably what nightmares are made of. Now, when the victims of Yeats's body started to be found, three bodies between 1997 and 1998 were found in this unassuming rock quarry. At the time, my mom was young and had just married my dad and remembers driving past the location when the bodies were being found. She remembers what it felt like to be young, and without knowing or understanding that Yates was profiling sex workers at the time, she felt the fear that I'm sure most young women in the area did. It's truly terrifying to even think of the word serial killer, but to feel that fear of knowing that they are at large and you're vulnerable must be unimaginable. And then fast forward all those years later, for myself and my sister and our friends to learn just how dark of a place we thought was fun truly was, it goes to show why it's always the serial killer's notoriety that never gets forgotten, as terrible as it may be. Growing up in Spokane, there was a lot of spooky and scary around every corner. Spokane is an old town, and while it has been growing significantly, it's not a tear-down-and-rebuild sort of city. There are old buildings from the late 1870s, and so obviously there are bound to be plenty of sinister stories to tell. My mom grew up in Spokane just like I did. Along with the sinister stories comes one of her own. A bit of background. In 1898, a section of the cemetery was sold to the Elks, a nationwide socialite club. In the purchased spot, the Elks built a magnificent mausoleum, completed with nearly 60 terrace steps and beautiful exotic plants. They'd even hired a full-time gardener to keep the grounds as crisp as the day they were completed, and members of the Elk did their best to try to convince others to buy plots for themselves and their wives near the mausoleum. Fast forward to 1971, and the Spokane chapter of the Elks had gone broke. They had to sell their life-size bronze elk statue that sat upon the mausoleum to try to cover their debts. Since the 1980s to now, the plot for the Elks and their families have been tended to by the Fairmount Memorial Association. However, the staircase is not a part of that groundskeeping. It is told that after this historical piece of property was sold, I'm talking about the elk here, that's when the hauntings began. Tales of a green iridescent man, or men, are seen floating about. Towards the beginning of 2020, a man had called the Fairmount Memorial Association and told that he had their elk and he was willing to give the seven-foot statue back. The statue did not make it back to its initial spot, though, because it's made of real bronze and worth a lot of money, Fairmount Memorial did not want it disappearing again. Now, there's speculation that claims that because the elk was never placed back in its initial home, the ghosts continue to roam and ward off those who try to reach the top of the mausoleum at the top of the thousand steps. Now, yes, I did mention earlier that it was 60 steps. However, those who tried to make the attempt at the steps at night claim that it's nearly impossible as the ghosts do everything they can to ward you off, so it feels as though you were climbing not 60, but 1,000 steps to the top. Once I hit high school, I definitely had my fair share of friend groups who wanted nothing more than attempt to climb the 1,000 steps. I constantly refused to go, obviously, telling my mom they said no, even though I never asked to begin with. However, my mom was a lot braver than I was in high school. I asked her if she wouldn't mind sharing her experience at the Greenwood Cemetery, and I think you'll find her tale as spooky as I did. It was the summer of 1988. I was 16 years old, and my friend Jenna and I were driving around Spokane Valley, Washington. On this particular night, she was trying to teach me how to drive a stick shift car. We were stopped at a stop sign, and I took off really, really awkwardly, and it made the tires screech so loud that a car passing by with two young guys in it whistled and hollered because they had thought I mentioned to screech my tires at them. They ended up pulling in behind us and followed us to a 7-Eleven parking lot where we all started talking and decided to spend the afternoon and evening hanging out together. Times were definitely different back in the late 80s, and that was more or less how you met people. Anyways, as we drove around Spokane, we went down to downtown and to Riverside Avenue where people would cruise up and down the street because that was the cool thing to do at the time. We started to get bored after a while, so we decided that we would go up to the cemetery in the north part of Spokane. 
The cemetery had a haunt in it known as a thousand steps. Jenna and I had never actually heard of this place. The guys that we were with had brought it up, and we decided why not. We weren't afraid of anything. We were 16 and young and out to have a really fun night. When we got up to the cemetery, you had to park on the side of the street, and we were kind of skeptical at this point because it kind of seemed a little odd, but like I said, we were 16 and out for a good time. We climbed down the ditch and came out on the other side, and that's where the thousand steps began. It was just an old staircase and a hill and didn't really have much around it. There were some gravestones here and there that were very well taken care of in that part of the cemetery, but it still seemed kind of creepy. As we took off up the stairs, it began to feel very eerie and kind of chilly, which was strange because it was a very hot night in Spokane that summer and the chill was pretty unexplainable. We all felt it, but we decided to keep going and not think much of it. We were feeling like we were nearing the top and that's when the sounds started. At first, we thought maybe we were being yelled at. Maybe we had been caught and we were being told to leave the cemetery by security or police. But as we stopped and looked around, the four of us trying to make sense of the noises, we never saw anyone. The sound ended up morphing into voices, voices that were screaming and making odd sounds. We continued to stand around, looking at each other, in complete disbelief at what we were hearing. The screams got louder and more distinctive, and our terror grew and grew until we'd had enough. The multiple voices and the screams and the shrieks as they got louder and filled the air scared us so much that Jenna and I ran off one way and the guys ran in the other. At this point, we had gotten separated, which obviously is a huge horror no-no. Jenna and I were holding on to each other, scared and shaking, and all we could think is we have to get back to the car so we don't get left up here. The guys had ran off, and we weren't sure what direction they went, but they weren't with us. So we tried to make our way back to where we thought the steps would be, but for whatever odd reason and unexplainable reason, we couldn't seem to find them. Instead, we just ran down a hill until we came upon a ditch that we scrambled through until we came out on the other side where we could see our car 25 feet away. We ran back to the car and waited for the guys to show up. When they got there, they had said that they heard the same screaming and strange sounds that made them think they were being chased, but with every terrified look back, they never saw anybody chasing after them either. As we piled into the car, closing the doors firmly behind us, we froze as we heard a familiar scream once again. It was in the distance, slightly faint but very distinctive of the voice we had heard before. We sat, eyes wide and too afraid to move. The worst part was now the screams were really getting louder, as whatever was making them was getting closer and closer. Snapping out of the statue state we were all in, we started shouting at the guy in the driver's seat to turn on the car and start driving and go. It felt like it took a lifetime for him to get the keys in the ignition and take off the parking brake as the screams got louder and louder. The tires screeched and we peeled out of there at a ridiculous speed, and for about the next mile or so, the screams followed us until we were completely out of view of the cemetery, and then everything went completely silent. We never did see the guys again, and truly, I don't even remember their names. Jenna and I were never able to make much sense of what happened that night, but having there be four of us, and two of us being guys, we knew what happened was real. And needless to say, we never went back to that cemetery. Cemeteries consistently hold that creepy and eerie connotation, and for obvious reasons. However, when I was little, my sister and I did walk between the tombstones of a cemetery close to where my grandparents lived. We were never scared, though. It always felt like a very comfortable and welcoming place. My grandpa passed away when I was 16, and he's now buried there, and I think because of how much time we spent there before that, it has a very peaceful and calming essence about it. My mom also spent time there as a child, but recalls a more sinister feeling lurking about. And honestly, whether it's a creepy or comforting place, I feel like nearly all cemeteries must be haunted to some extent, whether you hear or see a spirit or not. 
It feels as though those who go looking for the paranormal never seem to find it, whereas those who are there to be there tend to have the spookiest experiences. And of course, we all know of those who will do all they can to connect with the other side. It's been said that seances have been attempted at the Thousand Steps Cemetery, including people taking Ouija boards to the grave sites and try to connect with the screaming spirits. It's no secret that I don't mess with the paranormal, but Ouija boards are a whole other demon. There's so many rules, and if you're not following them to a T, you could easily open a door that you could never close. And for my sister, she fears they may have done just that. It was winter break my sophomore year of college. Abby, best friend for years, and I decided to head up north to Seattle to visit her sister, Erin. Erin's nearly five years older than us and living in her own apartment, so we were really excited to get away for the weekend and have some fun. Abby and I have been friends forever. We've been through a lot, and we've been fortunate enough to go through both high school and college together. Our family and my family were like families to each other, but we hadn't gone up to Seattle to visit Erin yet, so we were super excited. The night we got up there, we ended up just going out to dinner and staying at Erin's place, drinking and hanging out. It was a good time, nothing really crazy or unusual for our first night. Erin lived in a pretty popular neighborhood in Seattle, one where you could walk to the bars and restaurants or go shopping. Kind of the best part of the city to live in, really. The next day, we did all of that, walking, shopping, eating. We made it back to the house for the evening and wanted something different to do that night than the night before. Erin got this smile on her face when we asked her if she had any ideas and walked off into the other room without saying a word. Abby and I looked at each other. Our interest peaked. Erin came back a few moments later holding a box. Top of the box read Ouija board. Now I knew what these were. I've seen them in the movies and I've heard the stories. I've never done them. Never been in the presence of one, really. I mean, at the end of the day, it was made as a silly child's game, so how bad could it really be? Erin asked if we have ever played, a creepy smile plastered across her face. We told her we hadn't, but we were open to it. We were excited to see if we could connect with any spirits and hoped that maybe it would make for a good story to tell after the weekend ended. We put all of our fingers on the planchette and said hello, hoping to start some sort of conversation. After a couple of minutes, we all felt pretty stupid because literally nothing was happening. It would move a little one direction, we would all start laughing, and then move a little the other, and we would all start laughing again. We knew it was one of us messing with it, even though nobody would fess up, but it was obvious. We definitely had gotten into a creepy mood, though, and wanted to keep it going. With not a lot of luck with the Ouija board this round, or so we thought, Aaron suggested we head to a cemetery with a ghost box to see if we could communicate with any spirits there. It was pretty cold in Seattle this time, a little rainy, but not this night. Aaron had two cats, so we made sure all of the doors in the house were closed to keep them in the main room, and we packed on our jackets and piled into Aaron's car, just the three of us, and headed to the cemetery. I don't remember the name of the cemetery, and I couldn't even tell you how to get there because when we went it was dark, but as soon as we pulled into the parking lot, something felt off and we could all tell. On our drive in, we noticed a beater of a car idling on the side of the road. There was a person leaned up against the trunk, wearing a long black coat with the hood pulled up. This person didn't look up when we drove past. Truthfully, they didn't move at all. Once the car was parked, we looked back to see if the person had decided to get in the car or not, but they were still there in the exact same position, doing absolutely nothing. Turning back to face the cemetery now, Aaron pulled the ghost box out and turned it on. Again, I had never used one of these and was pretty skeptical, to be honest, and same with Abby, but Aaron swore she'd used it before and it totally worked, so we kept an open mind. Aaron started by asking for answers to questions like, is anybody there, or give us a sign, and at first we just heard some crackles coming over the ghost box, but nothing of any excitement, and then the crackles started to turn into sounds like someone saying, hmm, in little clicks. That went on for a minute, and then it started to become a little bit more distinct, and we all agreed we thought we heard the word car. Aaron asked what about a car, or are they talking about our car? And we heard what we thought sounded like man. 
and then it was just an explosive and repetitive car, man, car, man. Chills ran down our spines as we realized we think they were talking about the person we had passed on our way in. We turned back to look, but the car and the person were completely gone. We never saw a car leave, we never heard a door close, and we never even saw the person move, but they were gone. And at this point, Abby and I were done. We wanted to go back to Aaron's, go to bed, and forget about the silly ghost box. I mean, after all, it was just a dumb prank Aaron was playing. We bet the person in the car was probably her girlfriend. As we asked her to leave, some more sounds came over the ghost box. This time it was the word three. 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 Lamp. Lamp was new. Three. Lamp. Girls. We heard muffled out. Three. Lamp. Girls. Started to repeat. As we looked around to take in what we were hearing, we realized we were parked right next to a lamppost. And almost as if right on cue, as we looked up to the top of the lamppost, the light went completely out and the sky opened up, rain starting to pour. That was it. Take us home. We're done. Erin agreed and started up the car and we headed back to her place. Once we got back to Erin's, none of us felt any better. We were feeling pretty uneasy, still hoping that it was just some joke that Erin was playing and was really good at keeping up with. We got in the apartment and Erin called for the cats. When you get into the apartment, the main door takes you into the kitchen, and then from the kitchen, it opens up into the rest of the place. Because we had been gone for a little bit, the cats hadn't been fed, and so Aaron was shaking the bowls, trying to give them dinner. When they didn't come after a couple of shakes, we walked into the main room to see every door in the apartment was open. We stood there in shock. How? Why? Maybe it was Aaron's girlfriend, we thought. We made a pass through each room looking for the cats and found them in Aaron's room, curled up on the bed but there was no sign of her girlfriend. Tired and over their attempt at freaking us out, Abby and I decided we were ready to go to bed. He had to sleep in the living room because Aaron's place didn't have an extra bed for guests, which wasn't a big deal. As we made ourselves comfortable, Aaron's girlfriend finally showed up and they locked themselves in her room. Abby and I talked a little bit about that night and agreed it was just Aaron and her girlfriend messing with us. A few minutes later, they came back out of the room and said they were going to head out to get some food. We told them to have fun and asked if they would turn the lights off on their way out. Abby and I settled in and fell asleep pretty quickly. Not sure how much time had gone by or if we had slept through Aaron and her girlfriend coming back or not, we were awoken by a lamp turning on. We looked at each other and looked around for Aaron calling her name, but nobody answered. Abby got up and turned the lamp back off, got back on the couch, and tried to fall back asleep. A minute later, the other light from across the room turned on. At this point, it wasn't funny anymore. Abby angrily threw her blankets off and stomped around the apartment, opening all the doors again searching for Aaron. She ended up going out front, and Aaron's car was still gone. They were still out grabbing food. Apparently, only about 30 minutes had gone by since we had fallen asleep. Fed up, though, Abby unplugged all the lamps in the living room and once again tried to brush it off. I was not so convinced. I threw the blanket over my head, hoping to feel some sort of protection, as I know most people do when you've got blankets on. And that's when I heard it. Footsteps. Like somebody was coming out of one of the rooms and walking into the living room. Abby turned over, ready to confront her sister for this ridiculous game she's been playing, but when we both looked, there was no one there. And all the doors were closed, and all the lights were off, and we just sat there in silence, completely confused. And then suddenly, Aaron's bedroom door swung open, banging against the wall, and the light in her bedroom started flickering on and off. Terrified in that moment, we jumped up, turned on every single light inside, and ran to the parking lot until Aaron came back. We were pretty inconsolable and decided to sleep in our car for the night. We could tell by the look on Aaron's face that she had nothing to do with this. Trying to calm us down, Aaron asked Abby if she remembers us saying goodbye when we finished with the Ouija board. Honestly, none of us remembered. We thought it was a dumb game, so we didn't even put that much attention into it. 
but we refused to go back into that apartment, saying goodbye or not. Erin and her girlfriend decided to head back in and grab the board back out, and the two of them attempted to say goodbye and close that portal. We left the next morning, and that was that. Within a few months, Erin ended up moving. She moved somewhere nicer, bigger too, with her girlfriend this time. It was probably the main reason she left, but we can't help but wonder if maybe we didn't say goodbye, and maybe things never stopped. We haven't really talked about it since. It was pretty jarring, especially once we found out that Aaron really had nothing to do with it. We haven't experienced anything else on our end, so hopefully nothing got attached and is just sitting dormant, waiting for the right time to make itself known. But I will tell you this. I'm never touching a Ouija board again, and I'm never going to the cemetery at night. I might not have believed in ghosts at the beginning of the trip, but I definitely believe in them now. I love a good ghost story as much as the next person, but when it's real and it's that close to home, there's a lot of unease that comes with it. My mom and my sister have both clearly experienced something paranormal, and clearly, I myself can say that I haven't. And clearly, I myself have not. And maybe it's because I've avoided putting myself in that position, or maybe I just don't have that extra scent that would give me the power to, but I'm not mad about it. <laughs> I think my favorite part of being able to tell these ghost stories is not experiencing them. Growing up, it was always me and my mom and my sister, you know, three peas in a pod. So I thought, what better way to shake up this Halloween than to give you a little introduction to my family in the spookiest way possible. I really hope that you enjoyed these tales, and I am so excited for some of the episodes to come. I want to put it out there. I know true crime is such a big part of the podcast world, and I know there's so many amazing true crime podcasts out there, so I think for the foreseeable future, this podcast might steer clear of those for a little bit. I think there's so much to know about cryptids and hauntings and legends around national parks here in the Pacific Northwest that aren't really touched on in these true crime podcasts. And this region in particular, as mentioned before, we've had Robert Lee Yates, Fred Coe, who's notorious in Spokane, Ted Bundy, obviously. And so I think it's way more fun to bring to light things that maybe we haven't heard of that are right outside our back doors. So I hope that gets you excited. And thank you again so much for listening. And as we all know, the reigning question. Was it the old towns with decade-old cemeteries or what was supposed to be a harmless childhood game played at the right night at the right time that threw these two towns into Halloween haunts? Or was it the rain?